So again, uh, hello everyone. Greetings. How many people think that we've actually been here for five or six days together? Many people think that. It's um, fairly intensive, right? <laughs> and in actuality, this is the near nearing the end of the second full day. But I, it's very interesting how time really uh, seems different than what we know to be the actual reality. That it seems like we've been here, you know, maybe getting close to a week. But something else tells us, well, gosh, it started not that much longer than 48 hours ago. So which is correct? I think the first one's correct. So today, I want to explore metta a little bit further, particularly talking about ways of practicing metta. I'll do that about the first, maybe a third of the talk. Then I'll bring in compassion. We're going to be starting tomorrow in the uh, what we call the morning instructions with further instructions on compassion. We won't leave metta behind. We'll keep on practicing metta, but we'll be starting to bring in the other Brahma-vihara, the other dimensions of the awakened heart. And our pattern will be for the next few days that the talks will partly be about where we've been, again, maybe something like one-third, one-quarter, but then we'll also be introducing and orienting ourselves to the new practice. So I'll be doing that today and focusing maybe the last two-thirds of the talk on, compa on compassion and compassion practice. So I thought to begin with a very simple description that I like a lot from one of my colleagues at Spirit Rock named Anushka Fernandapula, who lives in San Francisco. And she said that metta is unstoppable friendliness. That's what she called metta, unstoppable friendliness. So if you like that, you can, people ask you what you're doing. I'm practicing unstoppable friendliness. Then I wanted also to read uh, a beautiful passage, which is from uh, recent translations of the early Buddhist nuns. And this is especially about metta practice. Full of trust, you left home and soon learned to walk the path, making yourself a friend to everyone and making everyone a friend. When the whole world is your friend, fear will find no place to call home. And when you make the mind your friend, you'll know what trust really means. Listen, I have followed the path of friendship to its end. And I can say with absolute certainty, it will lead you home. That can be the, the vision, really, of our practice. Hearing that report probably from well over 2,000 years ago of someone whose core practice or one of the core practices was metta, and that quality of uh, unstoppable friendliness. 
towards others, towards oneself, towards one's mind. And we're working with the formal practice. We're finding ways to bring metta into our time, as it were, off the cushion, outside of formal practice, now in our daily lives, and hopefully in the next uh, period of time. And yet the practice is, has its challenges. So I wanted to really follow some from what uh, Kyra Jewell was talking about uh, this morning, about how to work with some of the challenges of our formal meta practice. And I'll mention a few of them, really being complementary to what Kyra Jewell was doing this morning. You know, one of our major challenges to meta practice is that we get distracted. Distraction is a major challenge. Anyone been distracted some today or yesterday? I see no hands not raised. And we can be distracted, we can get confused. One of the uh, interesting and even humorous ways that we get distracted is we start messing up the phrases. Has anyone experienced the phrases getting messed up? <laughs> you know, I was, I, I've kept a tra track of some of the ones that uh, I've used. And so, um, you know, instead of may I be free from harm, may I be free from form. <laughs> Or, instead of, may I be happy and contented, may I be happy and cemented. That happened once. <laughs> may I be happy and cemented. And instead of, may I be free and live with ease, once I experienced, may I be free and live with lice. Anyway, so this happens, right? And so the quality of becoming more steady is part of what develops in meta practice. Uh, and there are really some beautiful aspects of it. There was a, a 19th century Russian Orthodox teacher named uh, Theophane who said, the dispersal of attention diminishes warmth. The dispersal of attention diminishes warmth. That the quality of, uh, maybe you experience this with the radiating metta, that there's a sense that we're quite unified. You know, the philosopher Kierkegaard once said, purity of heart is to will one thing. And so there's this way that we get more unified, more steady, less distracted, and yet it's challenging. So I just wanted to mention a few ways that we can work with uh, this dimension of distraction, ways that we can come back. Part of it is just to know that the distraction is normal and to keep on coming back. You know, have a kind of relaxed persistence. Relaxation is really key not to be too tight or too tense. Oh, I'm getting distracted. It's normal. And we just continually come back and that trains our mind, our being, our hearts. So just to know that. We can remember that the phrases are means to an end, that we're looking for that quality of uh, metta in the heart, that that's really what we're going for. So we might, uh, at the beginning of a session, say, may I, may I have relaxed persistence, which really gets at this way, that there is a quality of doing, coming back, being with the phrases, noticing when we're off. That's important. But that quality of relaxation is really important. So we can look at our experience and ask, do I tend to 
go on the side where I'm overly relaxed, not persistent enough, or am I a little bit too tight? Know your own tendency. Set your intention at the beginning of the session for what's helpful. Let me relax more, or let me be a little more persistent. Know that trying too hard isn't going to do it. Metta is really, as we've said, an innate quality of the heart. And it's really like that, again, like I've said, that knocking on the door of the heart. So trying really hard, too hard, where we feel strain, uh, actually not necessary. Look for that balance of um, relaxation and continually coming back. Also know that the way that metta develops has a mysterious dimension to it. Kyra Jewell told that story about Sharon Salzberg. And I had something very similar happen to me the first meta retreat I did. This was uh, a while ago. I think it was, uh, yeah, I think it was 30 years ago. And that was actually, I just did it on my own because I wanted to do more metta. It was before we actually had uh, meta retreats with actually good instructions. So I didn't really have good instructions. I was just doing it. And I thought it wasn't going anywhere. I had about a, a week or so, and I was doing the metta. I didn't think it was going anywhere. It felt dry. I said, you know, maybe metta is not for me. And then towards the end of my time, I noticed one day when I wasn't even doing the phrases, saying the phrases, over breakfast, I heard myself say to myself, I love you. I said, whoa, I haven't had that happen that way. So, so I said, must be working. But where did that come from? You know, it didn't seem to be working out of the blue. That happened. So there is a mysterious dimension to this. It's not linear. And what it means is that sometimes when we're doing the practice, we may be really dry and it may not feel like it's working. You stay with it and five or 10 minutes later, something can open up. How many have actually noticed that? You know, something like that. Isn't that interesting? One moment it's dry, five minutes later, something opens up. So it's know that it's mysterious. That can be helpful for not taking this so seriously or that or, or even you know, if it goes, quote unquote, really well, not to get too tight with that, not to get too caught with that, just to keep staying with the practice and have a, have a sense of that mystery. It can be helpful. Sometimes if they're really persistent thoughts, the same thought keeps coming back. Two things about that. One is sometimes on retreats, we find that uh, we're attending to unresolved issues. Anyone have an unresolved issue in your life? Okay. Maybe I should ask it the other way. <laughs> Anyone not have an unresolved issue? And it's natural when we get quiet, have some time, that the mind wants to go to some resolution. It can be beautiful. We can have insights. It also can be distracting. So one practice which I encourage is to recognize that it's actually important to attend to those unresolved issues and that it can take a lot of the energy and time of the retreat. So what I often suggest is make a time towards the end of the retreat when you're still pretty quiet and take some time to look into the unresolved issue. Maybe the last morning after the early session Maybe at the end of the day, the last day, last full day. But make, uh, as it were, an appointment for that. And then when the unresolved issues come up during the session, tell, yes, we're going to deal with that later. And that can be skillful. And you'll, you know, when you're still quiet, what's important will, will come to you. And if those thoughts, sometimes you could, if those thoughts or if maybe other repetitive thoughts come, 
sometimes it's uh, helpful just to look at those thoughts a little bit like you'd look at a puppy that you're training and say very firmly, not now. With metta, not being judgmental, but just say not now. That can be helpful sometimes with, um, with repetitive thoughts. Then a few other words about being with difficult states. Kyra Jewell talked about grief and fear and doubt uh, in the morning. And I wanted to add a few pieces to it. One is that our general pointer, this really follows from what she was saying, is that when we're doing metta practice or one of the other heart practices, and something comes up that takes our attention away, generally speaking, if it lasts just a little while, you know, just comes with a thought or lasts for 15 seconds or 30 seconds, we, we just come back to the metta. We don't have to name the, what happened as we would in mindfulness. We just come back to the metta. If something comes up that has both some duration and some intensity, maybe, again, we've talked about maybe grief comes up. You know, we have several people in the retreat with recent losses. And of course, we have the whole experience with the pandemic. And so if something strong comes up that has duration, that seems to be lasting for several minutes, the general guideline would be shift to mindfulness practice. Be with what's come up. Be with it at the level of the emotions. Notice what's happening in the body. Notice the narratives. Notice the thoughts. When it goes away, you can come back to the meta. You don't have to try to make it keep happening, but sometimes there's, there's strong things that come up, and that's the basic guideline. You know, and when it's over or you're not sure what's happening, then just go back to the metta. Another helpful guideline is to assess the level of intensity of what's happening. We want to be able to be with what's occurring when it's in the workable range. And so I like to use like a scale of degree of difficulty, like Olympic divers, one to 10. And know that sometimes when things are at a nine or 10 level, we actually can't be mindful and we can't do metta. But what we wanna do is do what helps us come back to balance. Often it would mean opening the eyes, looking at something that's pleasant, uh, sometimes it could be doing something physical, if you're really, you know, especially if it might be connected with uh, residues of trauma, for example, or just something very intense, maybe intense anger from something that happened. We want to assess the degree of difficulty and know whether it's workable. If it's not workable, we actually don't want to really use mindfulness and we don't want to use uh, trimetta. What we do is what helps me come back to balance. So that's important because uh, we can kind of know what's happening and just be lost in and be overwhelmed. So that's a guideline for difficult states when they come up in, in retreats. We can notice the, again, notice what's there in the body, notice the emotions, and really just be with it. And sometimes that happens in retreats. I've had retreats where I've mostly been for a good part of a retreat with fear. I've had retreats where I've been for the better part of a retreat just with anger. Another one where I was working, watching myself being very judgmental of myself and others. And we want to also notice sometimes with all of those, the emotions and the energy gets furthered by the repetition of narratives or stories. And we can sometimes notice those and have a choice. Do I want to keep on repeating that story? That's usually when it's not 
at a 9 or a 10. When it's maybe a 5 or a 6 and we notice ourselves starting to repeat the story, we can say, do I want to do that? With could be with uh, fear or being judgmental or, or anger. Usually the narrative is there because there's something unacknowledged or unprocessed. So actually when we stay with the anger or the fear, uh, something gets, gets worked out. And we want to, as Kyra Jewell suggested, complement that if we're going through a difficult stretch with the metta, with uh, the compassion practice, which I'll go into in a moment. You know, I was thinking of uh, friends in Thailand told me that I have one, one friend told me he was active in the student movement. Uh, he, he later became a monk and later became a, kind of a Buddhist activist. But he was in the student movement and he was actually put into jail and he did uh, metta practice in jail to work with the difficult states, particularly anger. And you've probably heard stories like that from uh, Tibetan practitioners who've been in very difficult uh, situations of imprisonment and have used heart practices to keep themselves balanced. So that's a kind of a, a good segue to talk about compassion practice. And as we proceed with the practice, metta practice will be a foundation for us. And when we do the practice, we'll actually start with periods of metta practice, which will kind of warm us up to go into the compassion. You know, I think I mentioned uh, earlier that we talk about one awakened heart with four flavors or four, or four modalities that when the awakened heart, which we know most generally as metta, encounters what is painful or difficult, it becomes compassion. It's really compassion is the natural state of the heart with what is painful or difficult. And I wanted to say a little bit about the nature of pain and a little bit about even the language because very commonly we talk about compassion is the response to suffering. But I, I find it useful to be somewhat precise with language because in English there's often not a clear distinction between pain and suffering. In fact, often they're taken to be the same thing. And what does compassion mean? And what does it mean to have a phrase in which we ask for the end of suffering? It doesn't mean the end of what's painful, necessarily. So let me say a few words about this, and this will be actually going more into the wisdom dimension, and it'll point to how as the metta and the compassion become mature, they get integrated with our mindfulness and with our wisdom. So let's go to that uh, first slide, uh, Onyx, the one contact to grasping. And this will be, I'll be explaining somewhat um, what we really mean by practicing with what is painful or difficult. And this is from what was the Buddha's maybe core teaching, the one he gave after his awakening. And this is right at the center of that model. Some of you know it's a model of 12 stages. I'm just going to deal with this very simple one, which is the key to understanding how we relate to what is difficult or painful. And it's a very simple model, four steps. Typically, most of the day, we have contact through one of our senses. And in Buddhist psychology, thinking is understood as a sixth sense. There is some contact. We see things, we hear things, we have thoughts, we have body sensations and so forth. This is the first step 
called contact. Now here's the analysis. This becomes very important. In relationship to that contact, we have a certain experience, and there is what we call a feeling tone. The Pali word is Vedana. You may hear that sometimes. It's either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. The actual term in the original text is neither pleasant nor unpleasant. So there's kind of a spectrum that goes from agony to ecstasy, you know, with neutral in the middle, and then, you know, we can have mildly unpleasant, mildly pleasant. So whatever we experience, it's going to have a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral tone to it. Now, virtually all of our experiences are relatively neutral. I think there was a research project at Stanford, and it showed that maybe 98 or 99 percent of our experiences are relatively neutral. And guess what? We're very interested in the pleasant and unpleasant, right? So there are going to be a certain experiences which have a degree of being pleasant. We eat something, we see something, we smell something, we have body sensations. They may be pleasant. We may have pleasant sensations, again, when we eat, when we see a sunset, and so forth. We may also have unpleasant experiences when we are sitting, when our body gets stiff, when we eat something we don't like, when, you know, as well as in uh, interactions with others, someone can say something that I don't like, and so forth. So we have a whole range of experiences. So far, this is happening all the time before we really have a chance to bring practice to it. Now, here's where the interesting part comes in, and this is really where the innovation from the Buddha comes in. When there is a pleasant experience and we're not mindful of it, we're not really aware, we're more on automatic, the pleasant experience will lead to wanting something. You know, we know this from eating. I'm not really aware. I eat something. I'm kind of on automatic. And I notice my hand going back for another helping, right? And uh, so this is analyzed in terms of two steps. Something is pleasant. I want it. And I grasp for it. Of course, often the whole process is very automatic. I come in contact with something, and I immediately grasp it, right? I see something I like, I immediately go for it. Um, the other part of it is when there is something unpleasant, and I'm not aware, I'm not mindful, it will tend to lead to not wanting something, third step, and then fourth step, pushing it away. And so this will, this will occur at the level of the body, I don't like how I'm feeling. I want to shift. And maybe I, I very quickly do shift. And sometimes that can be helpful. But it can be sometimes, again, very automatic. We can see this in interactions. Someone says something I don't like. And I instantly react back to the person. That would be, that would be happening. And so a lot of our mindfulness practice is actually learning over and over and over again, how this works. What this permits in the context of looking at compassion is that we actually can study what the mind tends to do when there's something painful or difficult. It tends to want to push it away, whether it's a sensation, someone else's comments, something that happened in my life. And we tend to do that automatically, somewhat compulsively, somewhat unconsciously or semi-consciously. And a lot of our life really is about going from steps one to four over and over again during the day. Now, with compassion and with our mindfulness practice, we're actually developing a different relationship to this. We're actually trying to see if we can actually be with the pleasant and the unpleasant, particularly, so that we notice with mindfulness the wanting or the not wanting, 
and we have some degree of freedom. Do I grasp for this? Do I push it away? Do I say this or not? And so a large part of our training is actually learning to be with the unpleasant, with the painful, so that we don't have this automatic condition reaction. <clears throat> so let's, we can let go of the screen share now. Onyx, thank you. Does that make some sense? And this is right at the center of our practice. This is right at the center because we could call the grasping and the pushing away, I like to call that reactivity. And the whole aim of Buddhist practice, mindfulness practice where it brings in wisdom, is to study and transform our patterns of reactivity. Again, one of the core patterns is we don't want to be with, un with what's unpleasant. And so what you see, compassion practice has to go hand in hand with our mindfulness and our wisdom practice because compassion practice is actually being willing to open up to what is painful. We can't do it unless we've done a good deal of looking at how our usual reactions are to what's painful. And this is really lifelong. And this is really why I actually uh, don't like to use so much the word suffering. Because the real practice is about moving away from the unpleasant. We could call that pain if we think of pain as synonymous with the unpleasant. But the whole aim of uh, Buddhist practice is to avoid that reactivity. Another way to say this, some of you know the text. I'll, I'll explicate one more teaching. Some of you know the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. And there the aim is to understand what's called dukkha and to transform it so that there is the end of dukkha. That's D-U-K-K-H-A. Dukkha is usually translated as suffering, which I think is problematic. I like to translate it as reactivity. One of the reasons that there's, I think, a lot of confusion about this is that in the original text, dukkha has multiple meanings. It has at least four major meanings. One of them really is equivalent to the unpleasant. And so it might, and that's often what's translated as suffering. And so one of the meanings of dukkha uh, that we find in the text is that dukkha is the unpleasant. So the Buddha says, old age is dukkha. Being ill is dukkha. And this is really really saying that it's, it's about what's painful or unpleasant. But we can ask the question, if the aim of our practice is to end dukkha, are we going to end the unpleasant? Are we going to end pain? No. It's part of human life. What we can end, and I'll get to this in a moment, is the reactivity. That's what we can end. And so I like to use reactivity as a translation of dukkha, even though it's not so, so literal. Um, a second meaning that we sometimes find of dukkha in the text is that dukkha is um, what happens when we move from the pleasant to the unpleasant, when, some, when it's because of change and impermanence. There's a kind of dukkha called viparanama dukkha, which is about Whenever we have something pleasant, it won't last. It'll be unpleasant at some point. But again, if we ask the question, what does the end of dukkha mean? It's not going to be the end of that because that's going to continue happening. You know? And the third meaning that we find of dukkha is dukkha 
as um, not as unsatisfactory, as un incapable of giving us lasting happiness. And this is true of any particular phenomena. We don't get lasting happiness by anything. But if we ask, what's, is this the end of dukkha? The answer again has to be no, because this process is just the way things are. You know, so the Buddha, when he was older, um, he had headaches. And he also had a bad back. That was the first form of dukkha, but presumably he had reached the end of reactivity. So he wasn't going around saying, ah, I wish I didn't have a bad back. Ah, right? Probably not doing that. Probably able to be with the unpleasant without reactivity. And so the last meaning that we find in the text, I think, is the one that is helpful for us understanding what compassion is and opening to what is painful and really wishing for the end of pain. And this is, this is dukkha as reactivity, and it's brought out in a, a particular teaching called the teaching of the two arrows. And it's very close to what I just gave with the movement from contact to feeling tone to pleasant or unpleasant to grasping or pushing away. This is a teaching where the Buddha said, everyone at times has unpleasant experiences. What distinguishes a mature practitioner from an immature practitioner? No one answered, so he gave his own response. He said, everyone at times has unpleasant experiences. You know, again, some of the examples. Unpleasant physical sensations, unpleasant interactions with people, painful um, experiences at any of the senses, painful thoughts, etc. That is part of human nature. And he said, everyone has that, whether you're a very mature practitioner or not. The difference is that the immature practitioner, which also means us when we're not really practicing, the that practitioner, when there is the original unpleasant experience, the Buddha called that the first arrow. He said, sometimes we're shot by a first arrow. And he said, what the immature practitioner does is when the first arrow is there, the immature practitioner shoots the second arrow at oneself or others as if that would help. And the mature practitioner learns not to do that. Another way to say that is the immature practitioner or the non-practitioner will be reactive and the mature practitioner learns not to be reactive with the, with the unpleasant, learns not to shoot the second arrow. So for example, I have difficult body sensations. What would the second arrow mean? It would mean tensing. I tense around the physical sensations. And some people with chronic pain, a lot of their pain, as much as 80% of the pain, may be the tensing around the original sensations. No accident that John Kabat-Zinn, when he had his first innovation and brought mindfulness into the medical world, he did so with people with chronic pain, actually. Because if you can teach people to reduce a lot of that 80% of the reactions, incredible. You don't get rid of everything, but it can be incredible difference. We also obviously see that shooting at that second arrow we have something difficult happen to ourselves. We judge another person. We judge ourselves. That's shooting the second arrow. Someone says something to me I don't like. I react right back. That's the second arrow. So the second arrow is reactivity. Sometimes people make a technical distinction and call the first arrow pain and the second arrow suffering. So that's okay if you're clear about that. But I like to use reactivity because uh, suffering gets very ambiguous. So that's, that's the background for bringing wisdom into the approach to compassion. So I wanted to go in some length to that to, to really give that sense of both why 
being with uh, what is painful is difficult and why in developing compassion we go against our conditioning. Compassion is opening up to what is painful or difficult. It's opening up to the first arrow in ourselves or others. And you can see that if we've done the practice of learning to be better with what's painful in our own experience, we'll be so much more skillful in our compassion. The original etymology of the term for compassion, which is karuna, is a kind of quivering of the heart in relationship to witnessing what is painful. There's a related term also translated as compassion, in addition to karuna called anukampa, literally means shaking and trembling when one encounters the pain of oneself or others. So it's a kind of, it actually is very similar to aspects of being uh, empathic. We resonate, you know, our limbic system in the brain resonates with someone else's difficulty or pain, you know. So we have to be able to be with the painful. That's the basis for compassion. So again, to see how it's related to our other training. This is a poem by uh, David White, showing really the necessity to be willing to open to what's painful and difficult. Those who will not slip beneath the still surface on the well of grief, turning downwards through the black water to the place we cannot breathe, will never know the source from which we drink, the secret water cold and clear, nor find in the darkness glimmering the small round coins thrown by those who wished for something else. And some of this is personal, some of this is in human conditioning. Some of this is in the culture. Our culture, by and large, has a very difficult time opening up to what's painful or difficult. Most societies do, you know? And so we've buried, for example, think of the large systemic pain of through the near genocide of native people in the US. Same thing in other many other countries, or slavery, or the legacy of Jim Crow. We've never really dealt very fully with that pain. We don't know how to often. You know, it's been powerful to me. I got to know one of the people who was on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. We spent about five days together. Uh, as part of a conference on contemplation and social action. And he told me amazing, amazing stories of being on the commission and listening to stories of pain and how the hearts would open, you know. And really incredible, but that that's not very often done. You know, we don't want to really look at what's painful. We put, we sh put the pain aside, you know, in certain parts of town or, you know, uh, old people, maybe we, we put them away and so forth. So a lot of the hesitancy to be with what's difficult or painful is social and cultural. And yet we, have, we can have inspiration also from many people who teach about compassion. One of the inspiration comes from a great being named Kuan Yin. So Onyx, let's start with the uh, slides. I have some images of Kuan Yin. Kuan Yin is the Chinese archetype of compassion. Started off in India as Avalokiteshvara, was male. In Tibet, became also female as Tara. And then in uh, China, became... Uh, became female. So this is the first image. Some of you may know this. This is a famous statue, which is in the uh, Atkins Museum in Kansas City of Kuan Yin. 
as a figure, you can notice compassion is quite relaxed. It's a very relaxed posture. And then the other images are ones that I found at the uh, Museum of Modern Art. Uh, when I was there in November of 2019. Little did I know it would be one of my last trips. So let's go to the next image. These are images from an from a exhibit that had many, many exhibits of Kuan Yin. These are mostly from the 14th, 15th, 16th century. It was an exhibit called Images of the Divine in Chinese Art. There's another. Let's go to the next one. Another image of Kuan Yin. If you look closely at the above the head, there is an image of a Buddha type figure. Next image. Kuan Yin is she who hears the cries of the world. Next image. And this is why, I don't know if you can see so clearly, this is Kuan Yin with a thousand arms. And this brings out one of the aspects of compassion. Each of the thousand arms, it's probably hard to see now, each of the thousand arms has a hand. And on each hand, there is an eye. And the eye brings out the receptive dimension of compassion. And the hand brings out the active dimension of compassion. And it's very helpful to understand compassion as having these two, these two dimensions. So we can let go of the slides now. And so compassion sometimes is just being receptive. It could be to visit someone who's not doing well, who's ill, or talk on the phone, and just be willing to be with the pain of the other and just to listen, just to be there, just to be empathic, to be compassionate, to be receptive. And I think we know that so often simply to listen to another person without even doing or saying anything is so healing. So part of compassion is just listening. And in the context of our retreat, we'll be also, we'll be listening to ourselves, to our own pain. In a sense, we can also listen to the pain of the beings that we work with. And we'll work with the same progression. Self, benefactor, friend, neutral person, difficult person. And we will tune in to what's difficult as we start the practice with each of the being. So there's first that receptive dimension, so crucial listening to someone, listening to ourselves, being without commentary. Such an important part of compassion. And then a second aspect is active. You know, in some sense, visiting someone, even saying, uh, can we talk, is active. Meditating and listening compassionately to oneself is a form of action. But there's also the action of helping others in various ways, and of social action. Like metta, there are occupational hazards for compassion. I think I mentioned one of them uh, two days ago, that because compassion is being with what is painful or difficult, as many of you know who are in the helping professions, there can be burnout, right? So that's an occupational hazard. There can be burnout. And that's where it's beautiful to complement compassion, if that's an active practice for us, with joy, with metta, with equanimity, with the other three. Again, that's where the mix of the four is so beautiful. The Buddha pointed out another occupational hazard. He talked about it as pity. And again, it's a way that we may feel distanced. Oh, this poor, painful, suffering person, right? You know, we don't, may not actually say it, but, you know, I'm kind of more together, aren't I? You know, and it may not be conscious. And there may be a true aspect of compassion. 
but there can be a distortion. One friend who uh, lives most of his life in a wheelchair, he said, you know, he was at a grocery store in the wheelchair and he was going through the line and someone came up to him and said, I so admire you to be with your difficulty. If I were in your position, I would kill myself. That's not pure compassion, is it? <laughs> right? But there's some compassion there, but there's that distance, right? There's something like that pity. Quite a, quite a story. So in the formal practice, we'll work with compassion using phrases. We can also do compassion as a form of radiating practice. But we'll work with, uh, starting tomorrow morning, we'll bring in phrases. So again, if you have a printout of the second side of the sheet, or the say, or from me, and then the one from Karajul, you can bring that. We'll also be able to put it on the screen tomorrow morning. And so we work with phrases, much like we did with metta. We go through a sequence. Uh, it's a little bit different than metta, the sequence, but it's pretty much, we train where it's, supposedly most easy, and then go to where it's a little more difficult. We repeat phrases which tend to be evocative of compassion. You know, and we'll also be at times continuing, if we have strong experiences come up, maybe grief or anger, we'll also be in a way developing the wisdom side, the mindfulness side that I was referring to earlier. So compassion develops in these multiple ways. And I think I'll bring in a, uh, a self-compassion practice uh, also tomorrow uh, when, we're, when we're together. There's some beautiful ways that we can do uh, uh, self-compassion as well. <clears throat> and so as we develop in compassion... We bring the compassion out into the world. We, we look at our own pain and we're able to um, have a different attitude towards others. A very interesting story that I heard from my brother-in-law who has worked with the homeless for many years. He was working with one man who said, you know, I used to be a burglar. And then I got burgled. Someone committed a burglary against me. And you know, it didn't feel good. It was painful. And I didn't realize that I had been doing things which were painful for others. When it happened to me, I said, I'm not going to do that anymore to others. It's kind of a strange story, right? But there's a way that it points to that way that, that uh, when we uh, can touch the pain, it changes things. We can visit people, we can have images, we can stay in touch deliberately with pain that socially may be covered over. Being in touch with pain can open us up in amazing ways. Um, I remember once after some, uh, I think it was uh, dental surgery, you know, my, if I had to tell you the history, uh, my dental history and its relationship to develop com compassion would be a talk in itself. Anyway, a lot of dental work. And one time I had dental surgery and I was there in the hospital and they had, um, used uh, general anesthesia, which one of my friends who works in the medical field said actually takes one to a state that's not so far away from death. And I had been in this general anesthesia and I came out of it and for about two or three days, I just felt like everything, all the beings and even the inanimate objects were vulnerable, could be broken. You know, human beings, but also even like the cups 
in my room. I had compassion towards the cups, let alone the human beings. From just opening in a deep way to pain. Maybe, how many have had something like that kind of experience? You know, I think it's, it's, it's pretty good. Not necessarily with surgery, but just in some other way. And being able to be with what's painful can really lead to breakthroughs socially. You know, something like the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. May we have one in our country, in the U.S. and in some of the other countries where you are. Thich Nhat Hanh says, the role of the peacemaker is to bring the pain or suffering of one side to the other and then bring that side's pain and suffering to the first side. That's what a peacemaker does with, with conflict. And I've seen that. I've been involved where that's been done with organizations where people couldn't attend to the pain and we had processes that were based on compassion that could open up organizations to the pain which otherwise was hard to see. Or the retreats. Of someone, some of you know Bernie Glassman has done retreats where people go to Auschwitz or go and be with the homeless and open up in that way. So let me finish with two quotes. One is from Aldous Huxley, who at the end of his life was asked, what is the most important thing? This was someone who had been an expert on all the various spiritual views of multiple cultures. What is most basic? His answer, try to be a little kinder. And then lastly, from the Dalai Lama, if you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. End of quote. That's <laughs> so what we'll be doing tomorrow. I'll read that one more time. If you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. Let's just sit with whatever felt helpful from the talk, maybe something I said, or something that just uh, occurred to you. See what may have been helpful or important from your experience of the talk. And I think for the tomorrow morning, we'll work with the uh, instructions for formal compassion practice. And I think I'll give a little longer chunk for discussion and, and any questions because I was originally intending to have some tonight, but I got into it. So hope that was okay. So... We have now uh, about half an hour, and then we can come back for the chanting. So let's just set the intention, what comes next, and how to keep our practice going in this next half hour. So thank you so much for your kind attention 
I can feel it. Um, and um, to be continued. So, okay. Okay, till next time. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.